Escape Pod. 440. March 20th. 2014. Canterbury Hollow by Chris Lawson. Welcome to Escape Pod, the weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Alistair, your host, and this week's story comes to us from Chris Lawson. Chris was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1966. During his childhood, he spent some time in New Guinea, where his father worked as a biologist on a crocodile farm, and his mother studied psychology of personal identity. Later, he studied medicine, in which he has attained a graduate diploma in biostatistics, epidemiology, and human genetics. He is an Aurealis and Ditmar Award winner, and his fiction has appeared in Asimov's, Eidolon, Agog, and many more. Your narrator this week is Bill Bowman. He last read for us on episode 424, and Bill started voice acting on the Metamore City bod- podcast and has always wanted to do more. He spends his days working at a library, where he is in charge of all things with plugs, and troubleshooting the people who use the things with plugs. He spends his nights with his wife, two active children, and two very active canines, everything that goes with that. So, get ready to be balloted, because it's story time. Canterbury Hollow by Chris Lawson Of all the trillions of people who have lived and who will live, Arliana and Moko were not especially important, nor heroic, nor beautiful, but for a few moments they were cradled by the laws of nature. In a universe that allows humans to survive in a minuscule sliver of all possible times and places, this is a rare accomplishment. They met under the sun dome. Arliana wanted to see the killing sun for herself, so she took the long elevator to the surface. The sun dome was a hemispheric pocket of air trapped under massive polymer plates on the crust of a dying planet called Muska. The sun dome persisted only through the efforts of robotic fixers and the robots themselves needed constant repair from the ravages of the sun. Through the transparent ceiling of the dome, Arliana watched the sun rise over the world it had destroyed. The sun was a boiling disk, white and fringed with solar arcs. Ancient archived images showed a turquoise sky, but the sun had long since blown the atmosphere to wisps, and now the sky was black and the stars visible in full daylight. A few degrees to one side, the sun's companion star glowed a creamy yellow. Dawn threw sunlight across the ruins of the old city. Rising from the center of the city was a tower many kilometers tall. The tower had been even taller once. It had reached all the way to orbit. As the sun rose in the sky, the number of visitors to the sun dome thinned out. Even knowing they were protected by the dome... It was a terrifying experience for many people to stand beneath the killing sun. They hurried to the long elevator and scuttled back home. Not Arliana. She wanted to face the sun, to challenge its authority to kill her. While the bulk of the people around her withdrew to the safety of the rock beneath their feet, Arliana chose to go further outward. The sun dome hosted a number of small buses, life supports on wheels, that allowed visitors to tour the old city. They were rarely used in daylight hours. Arliana went to the bus bay, now completely emptied of people, and found a bus that was leaving in a few minutes. At its allotted time, the bus gave a little warning beep 
The doors closed shut with a pneumatic sigh, and then it trundled up the airlock gates. As the bus moved over the blighted landscape, it gave an automated commentary. "'Different astronomers on old Earth,' said the bus, "'reported different colors for our sun over different centuries. "'When people first settled Muska, "'it was thought that the colors had been misreported "'due to primitive telescopes of the time. "'Now we know that the old astronomers "'were seeing signs of instability.' Arliana tuned out the words, but the sound of the voice was soothing. The bus made its way over to the great ruined tower. The tower was impressive, but once had been majestic, almost godlike in its engineering. Now it was a candle stub of eroded carbon. The soil at the foot of the tower had been baked to glass. The bus interrupted its commentary. My apologies, said the bus, but a high-energy sunburst has erupted and high levels of radiation are expected. The bus will now return for your own protection. I've been balloted, Arliana said. She held up her ballot card. Continue the tour. You are not the only person in the cabin, said the bus. As the bus spoke, a man at the back of the bus leapt to his feet. This was Moko. Moko, shaking off sleep and orienting himself to the situation, held up his own ballot card. I I've been balloted, too, he said. Continue the tour. As you wish, said the bus. Moko said to Arliana, I didn't mean to startle you. I lay down on the seat at the back and must have fallen asleep. No need to apologize, she replied. Come sit with me and enjoy the tour. The bus took them around the old city. The voice pointed out the old port and the old synod and the old settlement memorial. Every one of them had long since crumbled to an abstract mass. Midway through the tour, the bus announced that the sunburst had intensified, and even balloted citizens, and buses for that matter, would be damaged by the flood of radiation coming. There was no time to return to the sun dome, so the bus scuttled over to the old tower and sheltered in its shadow. Well, said Arliano de Moco, it appears we're stuck here for now. So it does. She watched him closely. He had a handsome face, if a little pinched at the mouth. He had continued to shave after being balloted, which she looked on approvingly, even though she quite liked beards. She extended her hand to him. "'I should let you know that I'm not much in favor of balloted romances,' she said. Moko looked back at her. She was tall and muscular with dark blue skin that had gone out of fashion fifteen years ago, but seemed to suit her. "'I agree,' he said. "'Too desperate.' I would go so far as to say cloying. Not to mention desperate. It bears repeating. So we're in agreement, then, against balloted romances. I believe we are. He reached out and took her hand. It took three hours for the shadow of the tower to connect with the entrance to a safety tunnel. For those three hours they sat together in the bus, hiding in the shade while the sun showered the world with light of many frequencies and particles of many energies, with some that knocked lesser particles off the land around them and made the world glow. They took the long elevator back to Moko's unit because it was closer. It was also much smaller, and after skinnings of elbows and barkings of knees, they decided that Arliana's apartment would have been more suitable after all. But... That was three hours down the Grand Central Line, and they were already together, if not entirely comfortable. So they lay wedged between Moko's bunk and the bulkhead above it, and negotiated their future plans. "'My top three, said Arliana, would be to see the first chamber, to put a drop of blood in the heritage wall, and to climb Canterbury Hollow.' "'You want to climb Canterbury Hollow? Isn't it enough to just visit?' 
I'm going to climb it, and I want you to climb with me. Moko sighed. I'm not sure I'm fit enough. Isn't it around 800 meters high? 822, said Arliana. But there's only a hundred or so of hard climbing. I need to get into shape. I'm not sure that's what I want to do with my time. Arliana tried to prop herself up on her elbow to read his expression, but she only succeeded in hitting her head. I know this is a gauche thing to ask, she said, but how much time do you have? Two weeks. She sagged back into the mattress. You could have some of my time. I've got three months. I couldn't do that. It's too much to ask. They lay in silence, thinking. After several minutes, Arliana spoke up. So what do you want to do with your time? She asked. Moko pursed his lips and said, I would like to visit the first chamber, add a drop of blood to the heritage wall, and visit Canterbury Hollow. She laughed at that. That's quite a coincidence. Truth to tell, I've had no idea what to do with myself since I was balloted. If you've got some plans, I might as well use them. Moko and Arliana donned pressure suits to explore the first chamber. Artificial lights illuminated the cavern. Rust-red trails of iron oxide dripped down the walls of the cavern. The chamber was smaller than they expected. Much, much smaller. Accustomed as they were to living in tight spaces, they still found it incredible that tens of thousands of citizens had once occupied a cavern the size of a sports chamber. The first deep citizens had lived here for decades while they had drilled away at iron and stone, following fissures and air pockets to speed their excavation. As they dug down, deeper into the crust, they had built new cities in the spaces they'd carved out of bare rock. At first they had merely hoped to escape the solar irradiation, but after two centuries it had become inescapably apparent that the sun was not merely going to scorch the surface. The ferocity of its light was growing, and soon it would burn off the atmosphere. Having built one civilization, the deep citizens had to build another, this time sealed from the outside world. They adapted their existing cities and spaces where they could, but not everything could be saved. The first chamber was too close and too open to the surface, and so it had to be abandoned. The excavating did not always go well. Several of the new spaces collapsed before they could be stabilized. In other chambers, fissures opened to the surface that made it impossible to trap air within. The tragedy was twofold. The deep citizens had built chambers intended not just for themselves and their descendants, but for as many people of Muska as possible. They had drilled too fast and hollowed out chambers too large and too fragile. In their desperation to make room, they had overreached. There was not enough space, nor air, nor food for that matter, for everyone. Even before the seals were closed, it was apparent that there would not be enough room even for all the re existing deep citizens. And so the deep citizens created the ballot. Moko and Arliana did not stay to explore the first chamber as they had the sun dome. It was one thing to see the sun and surface it had scoured of life. It was another to stand in the halls where the first ballot had been drawn. On the morning of their fourth day, they were awoken by a buzz at the door. Arliana checked the video stream, sighed, and told Moko to stay in bed while she dealt with it. Not knowing what else to do, he lay there staring at the ceiling with a view to getting back to sleep. That plan soon became impossible as he heard Arliana's voice rising with emotion and he began to wonder what it was that needed dealing with. Another voice, deep and male, spoke in hushed tones. 
Troubled by a dread that gripped tighter as Arliana's voice became more strained, Moko decided that he could keep his promise to stay away from the door while keeping alert for Arliana's safety by watching the video feed from the door. He tapped the screen and the picture flickered on. He quickly hit the mute button. Arliana was wrapped in her dressing gown, talking to a dark-eyed man who had dressed and groomed fastidiously, as if he were on his way to a funeral. In his hand he held a card or maybe an envelope, and he was offering it to Arliana while she adamantly refused to take it. As Arliana became more animated, the man seemed to crumble from within. His shoulders dropped, his giving hand fell to his side. Although Moko could make out nothing of the conversation, the volume rose to the point where occasional disconnected phrases from Arliana filtered back to him. Moko rubbed his eyes to make sure he was seeing clearly. If anything, it was the stranger and not Arliana who was likely to need his help. The door slammed shut and Moko flicked off the video. Arliana stormed back inside the unit, tossed off her gown, and crawled naked back into bed with Moko. "'Everything all right?' he asked. The door buzzed in three staccato bursts. "'Ignore it,' she said. A few seconds later there was another buzz at the door, then another, this time somehow sadder, and then the buzzer fell quiet. The silence stretched for a few seconds, then passed a minute, then passed three minutes. The door would not ring again. Arliana wormed herself under Moko's arm and began to breathe in shudders. Not knowing what to say, Moko said nothing, which was exactly right. The heritage wall was an hour by train from Arliana's quarters. They stepped out of the station into a low chamber, a mere twenty meters tall, but so long and straight that it seemed to be a continuation of the train tunnel that had brought them. The southern wall of the chamber was a milled plane that followed a subtly saddled polynomial function. The curve of the wall had a strangely emotive property. It could reach into people and make them pause in awe. Along the wall, following the relief lines of the function, were dots of blood where people had pricked a finger and pressed it to the rock. "'My family has a patch here,' said Moko. He led Arliana to the cavern, past robotic curators that cleaned the cavern and sharpened the edges of etchings that had eroded, and showed her the cluster of blood spots from his ancestors. "'These stop about thirty years ago,' she said, reading the dates etched under each blood print. Moko shrugged. "'Most of my family joined the Brethren of Light. I'm the only one left on Muska.' "'You have no family here?' "'My closest relative, both genetically and spatially, is my brother.' He's on a Brethren mission ship halfway to B right now. He's about fifty light hours away. You don't seem very Brethren to me, said Arliana with a touch of amusement in her voice. Well, said Moko, my brother is very brotherly. However, in spite of being a brother to my brother, I'm not brotherly at all. Arliana shook her head. Was that supposed to make sense? If you spend enough time around Brethren, yes. Now show me your family plot. Arliana led him to her family's cluster of blood prints. It was a large display that went back twelve generations. Moko was impressed. "'You think I should put my mark in your family's area?' he asked. "'They don't even know I exist.' "'Do you always worry so much about etiquette?' Arliana asked. "'You do understand that being balloted gives you a certain degree of latitude.' It "'Feels presumptuous to me.' Arliana scoffed at him. Since I'm not planning to put my own mark here, it's a moot point. 
Moko waited for an explanation, but Arliana did not seem disposed to provide one. Come on, she said. We'll find our own place, miles from everyone else. Wait a moment, said Moko. Arliana tried to draw him into moving on, but Moko refused. He was living with one Arliana mystery already. He was not going to let her keep spinning away from him. He examined the blood spots carefully, reading the names, dates, and relationships etched into the rock beneath them. I think I've got it. Here, he said, pointing to a spattered blotch of crimson on the wall. This is your sister's blood. Her name is Uldi, and underneath that is a girl's name, Karis, but no blood. The space has been set aside for a girl who has not been born yet, your niece-to-be. He studied Arliana's face. She was giving nothing away. He continued, It makes you feel bad. Uh, you know it shouldn't, but you can't help it. She's about to be born, and you've been balloted. Yes, you've got it. I don't like to admit it, but I'm resentful, said Arliana. I didn't say resentful, said Moko. I did, she replied, and then pulled him away from by the arm. They walked along the heritage wall until they found an area that was almost devoid of blood marks. Arliana called over one of the curators, a thin robotic agent that introduced itself and asked what they would like etched beside their blood marks. They decided their names and a small bridge between them would be enough. The curator robot pricked Moko's skin. Blood butted on the tip of his thumb. Moko pressed it to the rock face and the curator etched his name and the date around it. Arliana offered her hand to the curator. She pressed her blood to the wall next to Moko's and watched as the curator finished etching. As they rode the train back, Arliana fell asleep on Moko's shoulder. Now that he had time to think, he could see that Arliana had been too quick to agree with his guess. She had been far too blithe about it. It bothered him that Arliana had spun some more mist about herself. For someone who wanted to share terminal intimacies, she seemed paradoxically reluctant to let him understand her. He ran through the names and dates in his mind, trying to reconstruct from memory Arliana's family tree in the sequence of events. Something was amiss with the story he had intuited. Moko brushed Arliana's hair with his hand while she slept, and wondered why she kept so many things to herself. Moko said, This looks terrible. Should I care how it looks? People say I only wanted you for the time you gave me. I want this more than I care what people think, said Arliana. So they went to the registry and signed away the difference in their ballots. Moko gained time and Arliana lost time, but they would both live long enough for Moko to learn to climb. They started with training walls and then worked their way up to boulders, then spouts, and finally to sheer walls. She taught him about ropes and anchors and how to belay, and over the following weeks he built up his strength and endurance. Signing at the registry had another, quite unexpected, effect. Moko, who had more or less disappeared from his life, became traceable. Consequently, Arliana was woken one morning by a message marked Maximum Urgency. She opened the message. A man with a shaved scalp and a slightly pinched mouth appeared on screen. He wore a brethren tunic. "'My dear lady,' said the man, "'I apologize for sending a recorded message, "'but I am fifty light-years away "'and cannot engage in responsive conversation. "'My name is Tarot, "'and as you may have guessed, I am Moko's brother. "'I found you through the registry, "'and I apologize for intruding on you, "'but I have been trying to reach Moko "'with an extremely urgent message. "'It is imperative that he view the attachment "'as soon as possible. "'Before I finish, please allow me to thank you. "'When you signed your time over to Moko,' 
you may have given him just enough to save himself from the ballot. I can't tell you how much this means. There the message ended. Arliana shook Moku awake and dragged his grogginess out of bed. You have to see this, she said. Once the message finished, she touched the attachment and went to leave the room. Stay, said Moko. But it's private. Stay. So they watched together as Tarot, brother to Moko, spoke again. Moko, he said, there's a place for you on the last brethren ship. You know this will be the last ship to leave Muska. The sun is becoming too wild even for missionaries. I know we've been through this before, but I'm hoping that the approaching ballot date will have changed how you feel about joining the brethren. Please, brother, I love you, and it breaks my heart knowing how easily you could be saved. There was a stark jump cut in the video stream. Tarot had come back to the message and added a coda. The quality of the light had changed, the background was darker, and Tarot looked like he was being eaten from inside. Brother, I know I've asked you many times before, and you've refused many times before, but please, please join the brethren. I, I've i never said this before, but I beg you to join the mission. Even if you don't believe, just say that you do. That's all you have to do. Just say you believe. I know. I know it may be a lie, but with time spent among us, maybe you'll come to see our truth. Even if you don't change, even if you never accept the tenants, I will still have my brother. At the end of the message, Arliana turned off the screen. You turned on a place with the brethren, she asked, astonished. You could have avoided the ballot? Yes, I could have gone to the brethren and lived a life that means nothing to me full of empty rituals and prayers to forces I don't believe exist. You would be alive, she said. Just like you, eh? The sudden non sequitur jarred Arliana. What do you mean by that? she asked. You think I wouldn't figure out the story with you and your family? I know what happened. I know it was your sister who was balloted, not you. I know that you took over her ballot because she was pregnant. And I know that your sister fell pregnant after she was balloted which means that your unborn niece is not just a reminder of your impending mortality. She's the reason for it. And it's not your fetal niece you resent. It's your manipulative sister. You can't possibly know all that, Arliana said angrily. All right. I don't know all that. I inferred it. Tell me I'm wrong and I'll take it all back. You can't possibly understand. Tell me I'm wrong, then. Arliana said nothing. She just glared at him while an accusatory aura radiated from her. Canterbury Hollow was one of the great chambers that crowned their civilization. A wonder of engineering and of art, it had been carved in the shape of a cathedral window. Everyone came here when they died. For recycling. Here the bodies of the dead were committed to the huge bacterial vats that broke down flesh and bone and returned organics to the community. It was their last day together. The train brought Arliana and Moko to the base of the sepulchral tower, a bowed memorial to everyone who had ever lived and died in that underworld. Few visitors ever went deeper than the memorial park, but Arliana and Moko were not there to mourn, and so they walked past the sepulchre and into the darker hollow. The light dimmed as they went deeper. Here the brightness was only to be found where it was needed for the workers and machines of the hollow to perform their daily tasks. Arliana took him to a ladder at the base of the western wall that stretched up into the gloom overhead. 
I did all that training to climb a ladder, said Moko. This service ladder rises 200 meters. After that, it's all our own work. By the time they reached the top of the ladder, Moko's arms were aching. He wondered how he would manage the rest of the climb. Arliana reassured him that it would be harder work from here, but slower and with plenty of time for his muscles to recover between exertions. The route we're taking is called Little Freya. It's long but easy, and it has plenty of anchor points that previous climbers have left behind. Over to the right there, and she pointed to a series of vertical ridges 40 meters away, is Big Freya. It's a much, much harder climb. The record for free climbing Big Freya is seven hours. I've free climbed it in ten. Believe me, what we're doing is a cinch. They took a rest break. Then Arliana looped a rope through a nearby anchor and started climbing. They took turns climbing, then belaying, climbing, then belaying. Their progress was slow but safe, and Moko found that the longer they climbed, the more he became focused on each motion, on balancing the needs of work and rest, on finding the most efficient body position to keep a hole without exhausting a muscle group. Arliana watched over him, taking care not to push him too hard, nor to let him pause when they needed to push on. Time seemed to shrink away. He stopped counting hours and minutes and began thinking in steps and grips, which formed movements, which formed phrases. They went around bluffs, over ridges, avoided overhangs, and followed the road up the rock face. As they ascended, the light became more tenuous. They donned collar lanterns and set them glowing. Many hours later, they came to a small cavern that burrowed off the side of the hollow. Arliana helped Moko scramble over the lip and onto the safety of the space inside. Once he had caught his breath, he looked out the cavern mouth. There was another hundred meters to the peak of Canterbury Hollow. He groaned. The muscles ached in his shoulders, back, and calves. Arliana smiled. Don't worry. This is as far as we're going. But we're not at the top yet. This is better. Come and see. She took his hand and led him into the cavern. The space opened up at the back, and they could walk upright without hitting their heads. The light from their collar lanterns filled the small cavern. Hundreds of golden reflections shone back at them. The reflections came from ballot tags that had been hung from the roof. There were hundreds of them, maybe thousands. Moko moved about, brushing the tags with his fingers and setting them swinging. What is this place? he asked. Where climbers come to die, Arliana said. She hammered a bolt into the cavern roof, and from it she hung her ballot tag. Moko took his own tag and chain from around his neck and hung it from the same bolt, then looped a knot in the two chains so that the tags dangled face to face. Come here, said Arliana, and she started to undress. Arliana and Moko were two small primates who were members of a long, slow radiation from the Horn of Africa. Their lives meant little except to each other and to a small number of people around them, but stepping back, their choices were part of a pattern of self-similarity echoed on many scales of magnitude. The forces that drove them to each other also drove the cycles of expansion and contraction in the civilization of deep-kit citizens. It drove the population cycles of foxes and hares, and on a larger scale again, the cycle of ammonites and meteorites. This great engine of colonization and exploitation had pushed humanity outward, but it also destroyed the biosphere of a third of all inhabited worlds. Programmed death has dogged living creatures ever since deep, deep ancestors discovered the power of swapping genes. 
With the evolution of abstract intelligence, the tragedy of death became a folly. But without that folly, humans would never have made it across the Red Sea, and there never would have lived a pair of bonded primates in the crust of a planet 29 light-years from Earth. Arliana cut a small segment off their climbing rope and tied one end around her wrist and the other around Moko's so they would not be separated. On the time scales that affect human consciousness, they did not have long, but for twenty heartbeats they would be cradled by the forces of nature. Angels of gravity drew them an elegant parabola. Angels of electricity allowed skin to touch and to feel the contact. Angels of strong force held them intact and angels of weak force bound them to their mutual asymmetries. They walked to the lip of the cavern, held each other tight, and toppled into empty space. I've been watching the Neil deGrasse Tyson cover version of Cosmos recently. In fact, it's becoming a weekly ritual. Both I and my fiancé have a hilariously brutal schedule on Mondays that tends to finish around 9pm GMT, having started at noon. So we come home, we get the appropriate evening snack, we go to bed, we watch Cosmos, and we fall asleep. Trust me, science is never more relaxing than when a hot toddy and honey nut Cheerios are involved. It is an extraordinary series, too. A truly unique piece of TV, simultaneously honouring and deferring to the original, whilst definitively striking out on its own. I don't think I've seen a better piece of factual television in a decade, and I would suggest anyone who isn't watching it to do so. The information you get in there, odds are, given who I'm talking to, won't for the most part be new. But that's not the point. That doesn't really matter. What does is seeing a scientist and creative team at the absolute top of their game honour a modern titan while simultaneously finding their own voice in communicating the wonder of the universe around us. Also, Neil deGrasse Tyson, standing on a calendar marking the life of the universe, putting sunglasses on just before the Big Bang. That, right there, is straight up badass. I mentioned Cosmos because there was a haunting visual metaphor in the second episode. The Hall of Extinctions, a museum depicting and memorialising the five mass extinctions Earth has endured. It was laid out a little like the Parthenon in Rome, massive halls off vaulted ceilings and stone-clad corridors. The planet's history remembered and codified through fiction, and with surprising emotional weight. There's one shot from that episode of Tyson. Sitting outside one of the extinction halls, head down, hands clasped that really stayed with me. A scientist taking a moment to feel the weight of all the life he could never see and only struggle to understand. A man defined by rationality, pausing to let the emotion of the vast amount of death the planet has endured wash over him. And then getting up and going back to the business of learning things. That's the moment that resonates with this story for me. The leads find themselves imprisoned and defined by the expectations not just of history, but of enforced, controlled mortality. They stand and look at their own Hall of Extinction, break down their final to-do lists, and in doing so win not one, but two victories over history. The first is that they fall in the most polite, cautious kind of love I have ever seen. The second is that they choose to die, and choose to die together. 
It's not weakness, that moment where they step off the ledge. It's incredible, intimidating strength, turning the rigidly defined amount of time they have left into something that they can surrender gladly for 20 heartbeats worth of absolute freedom and complete love. They don't leave their Hall of Extinction, but they move in on their own terms, and that's enough. Here's Nathan with the feedback. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 436, Into the Breach, by Malin Edwards. This was the story of a mecha combat against the Illinois National Guard in Creole-soaked Alterna, Chicago. Reaction was generally positive. For example, Asamatas said, What a rich, vivid alternative world the author created. I must admit my poor recollection of French did not prepare me for its use in the story. That's not to say I didn't value or delight in its usage. I did. At points I felt a little out of step with understanding the basic mythology underpinning the story because of unfamiliarity with Creole. Shame on me for being so provincial. An aspect of the mythology, of the establishment of the Chicago city-state that I found interesting, was the notion that Illinois would not deplete Chicago's hidden treasure if they were freely given. Despite the young warrior's belief that the greed of their enemies wouldn't permit this, there seems to be an elder's wisdom saying that the treasures upon which the city-state stands could not be diminished if taken away. I found this disconnect between young militants and elder wisdom to ring true. For me, this part of it made the story come alive. The exoskeletal suits were also super cool. Those who didn't like it as much mostly objected on technical grounds. For instance, Windup, who said, I know enough about air combat to know that when faced with a high-speed, life-or-death struggle, most crew members find that training takes over. Sense of time distorts and emotions disappear, so concentration focuses on the very small number of things that keep you alive. For me, any story that has people contemplating profound emotions and meaningful memories in the middle of an air battle starts with a very deep plausibility deficit, and this one never overcame it. A similar problems with flying armor, it's such a ridiculous idea from an engineering standpoint that it has to stay airborne on pure hand wavy and in rule of cool. Unfortunately, providing details like the number of rounds carried just strains the illusion, leaving me thinking, okay, now where'd they fit? So anyway, blown out of the story by those problems, I never really connected with the characters or emotional themes and pretty much landed with a thud. Better luck next week. And indeed, that's all for this week, but do join us next week when we shoot the comments for episode 437 out of the sky with our anachronistic machine guns of justice. See you then. Thanks, Nathan. One thing before we go to the plea for donations. First off, fellow podcast pioneers JC Hutchins and Matt Wallace both have new series out. Hutch has The 33, a rolling superhuman prose drama series, whilst Matt has Slingers, a dystopian futuristic series of five novels dealing with the future's ultimate death sport and the people who play it. Both are fantastic. One features a cameo from someone whose name you will find familiar, and both are available for very cheap right now. Hop aboard and sort a couple of regular fiction fixes for the rest of the year. Now, we rely on you to pay our authors and cover our server costs, so if you liked this story, please go to Pseudopod... Pardon me. Force of habit. So if you liked this story, please go to escapepod.org, where I swear we'll have a cool name for the donate button soon, and click the uncool named donate button. That will give you two options. Donate, it'll be both a dull and crappy donate button if it didn't go there, let's face it, and subscribe. Donations are great, and one shot. Subscriptions are slightly better, and start from as little as two bucks an hour. Please, if you can, help. Escape Pod and I will return next week with Kumara by Seth Dickinson. 
Until then, our quote for the week comes from William Butler Yeats. Joy is of the will which labours, which overcomes obstacles, which knows triumph. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. <laughs>